0: You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Now our scripture reading is from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 1. And you'll find that, I think, on page eleven. 78 of the church Bible. If you're using one or if you can look on with one, it'll be helpful to you, I think, as we follow along in the reading. Um, Last Sunday morning, David uh, announced that uh, he would be preaching this Sunday morning, and all unknown to me, he phoned Will uh, a few minutes before the evening service to say, actually, he'd be preaching in the evening, and since this was all unknown to me, I confused the congregation by telling them that, in fact, I would be preaching in the evening and they would be preaching in the morning, and now he's gone off to the crash. And there may be a design here because when he asked for a title for the sermon this morning, the title was Pastor and People. So, the sermon is actually People Without Pastor. And we're going to read in Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 to 8. And if you're a visitor to St. Peter's, just to underline how confused we are, this is the second sermon in a series of evening sermons that has not actually yet begun in the evening. <laughs> Otherwise, everything here is completely normal. But let's read in Philippians chapter 1 from verse 3. I thank my God, says Paul, every time I remember you, and all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Jesus Christ. The most common occupation, as far as I know, in St. Peter's is not being a dentist, although that probably runs a close second or third. It may be a job in IT. I'm not absolutely sure about that, but I think the most common occupation that people who are members of St. Peter's have had, strangely enough, is minister. Uh, This uh, may statistically be the most ministered congregation in the whole of Scotland. Most of us uh, are happily retired. I wonder how many of us who are ministers, and you'll see the relevance of this to all of us in a moment, I wonder how many of us who are ministers would be able to write to any of the congregations we've served And there must be a fair bundle of them, and say to that congregation, you are my joy and my crown. These are the words that Paul uses about the Philippian church. There were some congregations he actually couldn't have described in that way, congregations who caused him grief, congregations who in some ways, were encouraged to despise him and demean him, like the church in Corinth, some who turned away from his teaching so that, for example, he writes to the Galatians that he is in the pain of childbirth, seeking to bring them again, to restore them again to the truth of the gospel. And when we read these verses with which Paul opens his letter to the Philippians, the way in which he always prays with joy for them, the way in which he remembers them, the way in which they have shared partnership in the gospel, the way in which he is confident that God will complete his work in them, the way in which they share in God's grace with him, the way that he longs for them with the affection of Christ Jesus I suppose, in a sense, the question that arises for us in the congregation is this. Could David Robertson have written this letter to the church that meets here in St. Peter's? And the truth of the matter is, just as well, we don't have all the ministers here so that we could have a panel discussion at the end of the service and ask them how many of the congregations they've served they could describe as their crown and joy? Or even perhaps a little more probingly, is there any congregation you've served that you could describe as your crown and your joy? Well, we want to be this. We want to be the crown and joy of our minister. We want to have the relationship with our minister, and we want our minister to have the relationship with St. Peter's that the Apostle Paul had with this marvelous congregation in Philippi. And not just to apply this to the statistically large number of ministers in the congregation. In a sense, what Paul is saying here applies to our mutual relationship with one another, that we should be able also to say of the church to which we belong, if we belong here, you're also my crown and joy. Whenever I think of you, I think of you the way the Apostle Paul thought of this church in Philippi. And he explains the nature of this marvelous relationship that he and the Philippians have had together in four different ways in these verses, and we're going to look at them very briefly this morning. The first is the Philippians are a group of Christians, and Paul describes, first of all in verse 3, the gratitude that he has for them. This letter is actually prompted by a gift that the Philippians had sent to him. Paul is in prison for the sake of the gospel. Traditionally in Rome, Some people think he was in Ephesus. Others have thought he was in Caesarea. But wherever he was, he was in prison, and the only reason he was in prison was for the sake of the gospel. And so, the Philippians had sent one of their members, one of their best members, perhaps one of their elders or ministers, all the way possibly to Rome from Philippi, and that man, Epaphroditus, had brought them a gift from the Philippians to help Paul. Uh, Unlike being in jail today, uh, the government did not pay for your food and lodging. You had to pay for it yourself. Uh, Paul, at times, was lonely in prison, very clearly lonely in prison. And so, they'd sent one of their number, and he'd brought Paul a gift to encourage him and help him. And Paul, writing back, actually says, the man almost died in the process of bringing this gift to the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle is enormously grateful for the gift. And yet the strange thing is, to some New Testament scholars, the really strange thing is that Paul doesn't actually thank them for this gift until he's almost at the end of the letter. He does it from chapter 4, verse 10, towards the end of the letter. He doesn't start the letter by thanking them for the gift. Uh, Do children still write thank you letters? Do you who are parents of young children look over their shoulder and say, make sure the first thing you thank granny for is her birthday gift? Not tell her what you are doing and uh, how things are going at school, but make sure you thank her for the gift. It's the first thing that you ought to do. So why does Paul make this mistake, if it is a mistake? Why does he leave it to the end of the letter? So surprising to some scholars that they think the end of the letter must be another letter that he sent later that's been tagged on at the end. And the reason is quite simply this, that the thing he is really thankful for is not so much their gift, nor is the person to whom he is chiefly thankful the members of the Philippian congregation. The person to whom he is chiefly thankful is the Lord. And what he is chiefly thankful for is not so much the gift that the Philippians have sent to him, but the Philippians themselves. He is thankful for the Philippian church because God has given them to him. And he's looking back. He, he tells us that he thinks of them with gratitude, and I'm pretty sure some of those in the Philippian congregation listening to this letter being read out were looking across the room and smiling at one another because they remembered how, when Paul had come to Philippi within a matter of days, some of them had been brought to faith in Christ. Lydia, the businesswoman, the, the poor, demented slave girl who was being used and abused by wicked men, the Philippian jailer who was supposed to look after Paul when the authorities had put him in prison, and would understand why Paul was, yes, thankful for the gift that they had sent to him, but he was, he was almost infinitely more thankful for them themselves. In a way, that was so Jesus-like. Remember how Jesus says, Matthew 11:25, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, I thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and you've revealed the truth of the gospel, my identity. You are saving love to these simple children. And he had a way of speaking about his disciples. He loved to think about them and speak about them and be grateful to his father because they were those the father had given to him. Father, he said when he prayed, I'm praying for those you have given to me. And this is Paul's first reason for rejoicing in the Philippian church. And in a way, this should be the first reason for any of us rejoicing in the church to which we belong, that these are the people the Father has given to us. They may have great gifts or they may have small gifts. That's incidental. They may do a lot of things for us or very few things for us. That is incidental. The chief thing is this, that they're the ones the Father has given to us. And that's the reason, as Paul says here, that he is so deeply grateful for them. I wonder actually if there's a lesson for all of us here as we we seek to minister to one another and to others. I wonder if the lesson is that we cannot easily or perhaps fully minister to others in the congregation unless we are first thankful for them, thankful for the fact that God has given them to us. No matter how strange, how difficult, how angular they may be, that God has given them to us and we're thankful to Him for giving them to us. And when that's true, when, when we look upwards to God who has given us our fellow believers, and not, first of all, at our fellow believers in order to assess them, when we look that way to see our brothers and sisters, then thankfulness flows, and thankfulness transforms the way in which we minister to others. You can never minister grudgingly to someone for whom you are thankful to the Lord. So, Paul tells us that he has gratitude for them. The second thing he mentions is that he has joy because he's had a partnership with them, verses 4 and 5. He says, I pray for you with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. It's the word that we often translate fellowship. And it means something a wee bit different from what sometimes we call fellowship. For us, fellowship, in a sense, means being with one another. But in the New Testament, fellowship essentially means partnership in something, that the two of us, or the three of us, or the many of us are not just together looking at one another, but that we are joined together in an enterprise that is bigger than any of us. And that enterprise that Paul describes here is a partnership together in the gospel. And it was this that gave him such deep satisfaction. Verse 5, I'm so grateful. I pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And then you notice what he goes on to mention in verse 7 about this partnership. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart, for whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. I think it was this that really touched him about the fact they'd sent Epaphroditus. Not that he'd brought money, not that he had provided wherewithal, but that it was a sign that they wanted to embrace him in his sufferings, to have partnership with him in, in these sufferings in which he was defending and confirming the gospel. It was as though they were saying, our apostle is in prison because of the gospel, and in that prison we identify ourselves with him. We embrace him. We want to belong to him. What does that mean in, in terms of our lives? Remember at the end of his life when Paul writes to Timothy, he says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, he says, oh, Timothy, don't be ashamed of Jesus Christ. And amazingly, in the same breath, he says, and don't be ashamed of me. Now, you you wouldn't say that, I I don't think. I don't think I could bring myself to say that to somebody. Don't be ashamed of Christ and don't be ashamed of me. I don't belong in the same sentence there. Yes, don't be ashamed of Christ, but how can I possibly say, and don't be ashamed of me? Even as an apostle, how can he possibly say, and don't be ashamed of me? Here I am in prison. I'm suffering. I'm lonely. I'm not the mighty apostle Paul of legend. I'm not ending my life the way it ought to be ended in a, in a blaze of glory. I'm not famous. I'm not adored. I'm not esteemed. I'm demeaned. Even my fellow Christians have failed to come to stand beside me. And he says to Timothy, don't, don't be ashamed of Jesus and, and don't be ashamed of me. How do those two things belong in the same sentence for this very simple reason? That if someone were ashamed of the Apostle Paul at his weakest and lowest and poorest and neediest, that would be being ashamed of Jesus, wouldn't it? Remember those words of Jesus, inasmuch as you have done it to one of these, the least of my brothers, you've done it to me. And inasmuch as you've failed to do it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you've failed to do it to me. And what I think must have bound Paul to this little congregation in Philippi was that even when he was at his lowest and his neediest, they they weren't ashamed of him. They wanted to embrace him, identify with him. You know, it's often struck me as a minister that the, the biggest test of ministry is not that I'm able to hang around people I might regard as my peers in one day or another, one way or another, uh, or or mingle with the really important people in the congregation. Actually, the biggest test is uh, dealing with the least and the lowest, perhaps even the the most difficult, because if Jesus isn't ashamed of them, how dare I be ashamed of them? And Paul had seen this in the Philippians. He had he had gratitude to God because God had, had given him to them and them to him, and he had joy because they shared together in this partnership in the gospel. And then there is another reason he's bound closely to them, and he mentions it in verse 6. It's because he, of the confidence that he has in God's work in them, because of your partnership in the gospel, verse 5, from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I wonder if he writes this because, uh, you know, when, when the man who has planted the church, who has cared for the church, who has committed himself to the church, seems to be silenced and marginalized when the the father figure of the Philippian church, to whom so many of them must have looked as their their friend, their counselor, their guide, the, the founder, in many ways, whoever other men were serving them, Paul was like their first pastor. So now what are they going to do? are they going to stumble and fall? And he says, no, no, God began the work in you. And actually, if you read the story in the Acts of the Apostles, the way Luke tells the story, and interestingly, this is the first part of the Acts of the Apostles where Luke appears. Luke is completely absent for the first 16 chapters of the Acts of the Apostles. Everything he says there, he says because somebody told him. And then all of a sudden in chapter 16, instead of using they and them, he starts using we and us. Luke appeared just at the moment. This little band of Christian missionaries were were going through a very strange and unnerving experience. Luke tells us that what happened was this. They wanted to go to one place, and they found that God was closing the door, and then they tried to go somewhere else, and God seemed to be hindering them. And eventually, Paul has this dream that seems to confirm, maybe this is what we should be doing. And as soon as they arrived in Philippi, they, they go to where the little synagogue would gather. And there was a group of women there meeting for prayer and And Paul spoke about the gospel, and we're told very, very quietly, the Lord opened Lydia's heart. And then Paul is walking through the streets of Philippi, finding places to testify to Christ, and he finds these wicked men abusing this this young slave girl who is possessed, And he is grieved in spirit, and the day comes when he casts out the wicked spirit. And I'm sure that story is there in the narrative that Luke tells it, because this this girl was also brought into the church family. And then the amazing story of the Philippian jailer and and his family. And he's saying to them, just Think about how you came to faith in Christ in the very first instance. We told you we never planned to come to Macedonia. We told you we never expected to be in Philippi, but the Lord brought us there. The Lord began the work. Think about what happened to Lydia, how the Lord opened her heart. Think about what happened to the girl. How the Lord delivered. Or think about the Philippian jailer. How the Lord brought him to faith. And the, the same is true in different, completely different stories. Quietly, dramatically, providentially. Is it really possible to be a Christian believer? and not to understand that it was the Lord who began the work in me, that I'm the Lord's workmanship, and He always finishes the work He begins. Indeed, we could could almost translate what Paul says here, that God will put the finishing touches to the work that He began. It's as though He's saying to them, God's already done the big thing, and if He's done the big thing, He's not going to let the small things stand in His way. And So, Paul is encouraging them, but he's also rejoicing because he has this confidence that God has begun the work and that God will finish the work that He has begun. That's a great thing to know. That's a great thing to To understand the Bible's message is that uh, God was seeking you before you were ever seeking Him. And if He's begun the work, He isn't the kind of God who gives up on the work that He has begun. Do you know that great hymn of uh, top lady, a debtor to mercy alone? The work which His goodness began, the arm of His strength will complete. His promise is yea and amen and never was forfeited yet. Yes, I to the end shall endure as sure as the earnest is given. And then this amazing line, more happy but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. Do you believe that? That's that's what the gospel teaches you, that the glorified spirits in heaven— Probably are much happier than you are. But they can never be more secure. They can never be more secure. And what a difference this makes to Paul that he he understands that the, the fellowship in which they're involved, the work that they share, the partnership that they have in the gospel is not, in the first instance, their work at all. I don't think you ever make any real headway in serving the Lord Jesus until you understand this is not your work? There's no surer way to discouragement than to think this is your work, and no surer way to encouragement than understanding that you have been called into sharing in God's work, and He always brings to completion whatever it is that He begins. So, there's gratitude, there's joy, there's confidence. And all of this is rooted in a fourth thing he mentions, and you see it in verses 7 and 8. The gratitude he has to God for them, the joy he has in his fellowship with them, the confidence he has in God's work in them. And all of this, he says, is surrounded, the atmosphere of this is in verses 7 and 8, the love that He has for them. He says, "'It's right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me, and God Himself can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus.'" It's interesting, actually, and if you read these verses when you go home, that the number of alls and everys in, in these verses may be unparalleled in the whole of the Bible. There's a reason for that. But he keeps saying, I think this way about all of you, not just about some of you, but all of you. And I care for all of you. And I have all of you in my heart. Or as he actually goes on to say in a in a more Hebraic fashion, uh, he has these these gut feelings about them. You know, the the Hebrew people placed the emotional life of individuals in a lower part of the anatomy than the heart, and that's what he's saying here. Yes, you're you're in my heart, but you're 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 in my very guts. You're I'm I'm stirred within. When I think about you, I have deep-seated emotional concerns and love for you. I remember learning at school, I don't know whether it was true, Mary Queen of Scots said, you know, if when I'm dead they, they dissect my body and take out my heart, they will find the word cali written on it. And it's as though Paul is saying, you know, if at the end they dissect my body and take out my heart, they'll find the Philippians written on it. Uh, and you see, he has been this kind of giving pastor to them, but he's rejoicing because they have been this joy and crown congregation to him. Maybe it's as well, David's not here. Let's scrub the tape so that he can never hear this. But among the many responsibilities we have to our minister is to be his joy and crown. The biggest blessing that we can be to our minister is to be his joy and crown. And you might think, but David's this and David's that, just as people said, but Paul's this and Paul's that. you see, what is so striking about everything Paul says here is that it seems to be such an echo of the Lord Jesus, and all that Jesus' people mean to Him. And we want to be that, don't we? We want to be a joy and crown congregation. Uh, not just so that our minister can boast of us, as Paul actually boasted of some of the congregations he served, but so that we can please the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, over the years, uh, I've had the experience most ministers have of uh, vacancy committees or pulpit search committees, deputizing somebody to phone me up and and ask uh, for advice. And, of course, the advice is just a kind of cover for them saying, because they've been told to say this, ask him if he'd be interested himself. And I say, no, I'm not interested myself. Well, then ask him, does he know anybody? And I've always said this, send me your stuff. You know, congregations have stuff that they send out to candidates. Send me your stuff. But you need to understand that if I I recommend somebody to you as a potential minister, it's going to be somebody I would happily spend the rest of my life sitting under his ministry. So, I may not go easy on your stuff. And then I get the stuff. I mean, sometimes it's stuff like this, you know, it's taken a special delivery to, to bring this stuff. And then I look to see, what, what is this congregation looking for in a minister? And it's amazing, actually, what congregations look for in ministers. He's got to be an outstanding Bible expositor. He's got to have an acute sense of theology. He's got to be a terrific apologist. He's got to have a real heart for the poor. He's got to be able to deal with the rich. He's got to be a tremendous administrator. He's got to be able to lead meetings. Uh, He's got to be a real man of prayer, got to be absolutely devoted to his family and spend time with them. We want him to have a wider ministry and a, a thousand other things. And when the phone call comes, I always ask the same question. It's this, what kind of congregation are you prepared to be for such a minister? Now, I know that's, you know, I'm in the trade, I'm in the business, I'm in the profession, I'm one of the boys. But isn't it interesting how we, we think this way? What kind of minister do we want? And not from this angle. What kind of congregation are we being for the minister we have? Joy and crown. Do you know if you have the privilege, and I hope you do have the privilege of meeting the Apostle Paul in heaven, I'll tell you how you'll recognize him. Not because the one description of him anywhere in antiquity says he had a hooked nose and bow legs. Any man who spends that amount of time traveling and is of Jewish background is probably going to be hooked nose and bow legged. So be. Maybe zillions of people that look like that in heaven, but there is one way you'll be able to recognize him from what he wears on his head, because on his head is the crown of joy. And it's, or at least part of it, is Philippian-shaped. So, how will David Robertson be dressed in the glory On his head, we pray, will be this crown of joy. And at least part of it will be St. Peter-shaped. That's what Jesus wants, both in pastor and in people. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the many different ways in which Your Word gives us instruction and illumination We thank you that it it speaks about our private lives and our public lives, our individual lives, and our life together as your people. And we do long as we come to you that more and more we will be this kind of congregation, not just so that we can be a blessing to David, but that so we may be the kind of congregation that ministers within itself and beyond with thankfulness, with a sense that we are caught up in God's work, with this joy of belonging together in the body of Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you would help us, that you would mold us together, that you would help us to see each other more and more, not just horizontally in terms of what we are in and of ourselves, but vertically as those who have been given to each one of us in this bundle of life by our Lord Jesus Christ Himself. So, hear us and help us, we pray in His name. Amen.